ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Dan Efron, sitting in for host Amy McKinnon, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. If you're new to the show, the idea is simple. Each week, we recommend one podcast from somewhere around the world. If you like it, that's great. It means we've exposed you to something new and interesting. This week, we're featuring the Imperial War Museum's podcast called Conflict of Interest. The show includes stories about conflicts around the world, and it uses the museum's artifacts to help tell those stories. In just a minute, you're going to hear episode one from the series titled The Yugoslav Wars. We're talking about the 1990s, the worst bout of fighting in Europe since World War II. But first, here's Carl Warner, a curator at the Imperial War Museum, talking to Amy McKinnon about the episode. One of the reasons why we loved Conflict of Interest um, and what I think makes it really distinct is that each episode has a celebrity host. Um, and the one that, that we're going to hear today on the Yugoslav War is that's the British comedian Deborah Francis White, who by her own admission at the beginning of the episode, you know, admits that she doesn't really have an in-depth understanding of the conflicts in the Balkans. And could you just talk us through what, what was the idea behind that and bringing in a kind of an outsider and having them act as a, almost as a guide through these episodes? I think, you know, it, it's fair to say that the vast majority of people are, are not necessarily au fait with the causes, course and consequences of, of many of the conflicts in the, the 20th and 21st century. Um, and there's no shame in that. You know, we live in an incredibly information-rich environment and there's there's an extraordinarily large range of sources that people can go to for information. And sometimes it's difficult to, to sort of sort out where, where the, the best place to get that information from is. For us, I think the idea for the IWM Institute team the idea really came from from this sense of there being kind of no no stupid questions as a former colleague of mine used to say you know um, i don't know is not a dishonorable answer it's how you sort of you know what questions you ask to to rectify that and one of the things that i think the institute podcast conflict of interest sort of gets into is that there are plenty of people out there who are who are prepared to you know to sort of put themselves forward to say I'm I'm happy to ask those sorts of questions so that in an environment where we have a, a museum collection and where we have eyewitnesses who can help answer some of those questions mm. those questions can be answered in a in a kind of a supportive and non-judgmental way you know there are no stupid questions and and if people who are famous and put themselves out there are, are prepared to ask them then uh, maybe other people feel uh, more inclined to sort of go well actually yeah I, I kind of wanted to know that as well. Mm -hmm. One of the things we talk a lot about on this podcast is the importance of narrative in, in telling stories and um, in telling histories and events and I you know I was struck that that's that's part of your job title and how important is narrative in, in museum creation in the kind of work that you do? The idea of narrative, as you as you point out, it's in it's in my job title. I think one of the the crucial things that um, sort of differentiates the way that we think about curation today from from perhaps how it used to be viewed is that the curator is there to um, to not just help unlock the stories in particular objects, but of course to link those objects together in in a storytelling arc to 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 use them as the sorts of evidence that any historian will put together to form a a more complete picture of a of a past event or a theme. 
I think for us, storytelling is absolutely core to the sort of curatorial value that, that we provide. And I think it's particularly true for institutions such as ours, where meaning making can sometimes feel very distant from the objects that we, we look at. So it's our job to allow people to feel a sense of reverence for the ordinary. Um, so one of the things that you will hear in, in the podcast is, you know, some of the objects that we look at in, in the different podcasts are on the face of it quite ordinary. Um, in the Yugoslavia podcast, for example, you know, I, I pick up a, just a series of badges. Um, now, they tell on the face of it, you know, it is a collection of badges of different military units. Well, when you um, put them together, you suddenly get a sense of not just the, the range of different factions involved in the conflict, but you get a sense mm. of some of the the, the the heritage of each of those units and, and some of the darker heritages of, the, of those units, as you see symbols that are reclaimed from earlier points of ethnic tension and then re-emblazoned in, 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 in a new context. And all of a sudden these, you know, ordinary bits of material that you might see on a blanket or something become become very different. So storytelling is, is extraordinarily uh, important. So in the first series of the podcast, there's a mix of conflicts which are currently ongoing um, and others which, you know, albeit are over, still have, have a great impact on current events today, such as the Yugoslav Wars and Northern Ireland. What struck me when I was reading through that list was how I relate to them differently based on whether I was kind of old enough to follow them as current events versus, I mean, I was obviously alive during the Yugoslav Wars, but I was still a child. And I, so I relate to it as a, more of a historical event. How does the way we talk about conflicts change when they're current events versus when they kind of move into the rearview mirror of history? How does the way we talk about them and relate to them shift? I think that's a really good question. And I think there are a couple of ways to look at it. Firstly, obviously, as part of what we do, we, we talk to um, veterans and, and eyewitnesses of, of conflict. And it becomes a, a really interesting question about the kind of the sweet spot, the point at which recollection is still strong, where their, 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 their memory of a particular event or, or conflict is strong but that sometimes the proximity, the temporal proximity, the proximity in time to that conflict um, is distant enough to allow certain stories to be told in ways that perhaps they weren't comfortable talking about in the beginning. Mm. So that's one one um, area where I think that's that's really important, you know, that the, our access to the people who talk about these stories and when we get them to talk about them, that I think makes a difference. In, in terms of us as sort of consumers of those stories or listeners to that storytelling it does make a difference the point at which the audience is familiar with a, a particular conflict and we have this sense particularly as our museum grows or continues to exist because of course it was founded at the end of the first world war um, and for its early period it was a sort of uh, a helpful tool in helping that generation that had been through the First World War mediate their experiences and perhaps help help them to explain their experiences to their relatives, their children. Um, a colleague of mine always used to talk about, you know, we used to be full of granddad guides, granddad or, or grandma guides, because the content of the galleries, particularly on the Second World War in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, was a kind of... Um, an aid memoir, a tool for the for, for storytelling, because an overwhelmingly large number of people have been through these conflicts. We, as those conflicts slip out of living memory, then our job becomes slightly different. We're no longer there to sort of facilitate these conversations. We have to be the kind of the, the conversation starter and provide the, the, the full kind of interpretive um, angle on, on these stories. Mm. You mentioned several times in the episode that we're going to hear that quote, about about history rhyming. Why is that? Are we condemned to just repeat the same mistakes as our as our ancestors or you know are we just not learning the right lessons from our history? Yes, I mean it's a wonderful quote. It's 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 um Mark Twain. Um you know history doesn't repeat it, it but it rhymes. And we, we you know we're we're faced in life with a lot of truisms, a lot of sort of trite clichés. And I think it's really unfortunate sometimes because the reason that cliche becomes a cliche is because originally it has extraordinary power, right? People recognize it to, to such an extent that they will continue to use it. And we, I think, are in danger of sort of, you know, it's 
it's the first answer that any you know that any kid will do why do you study history well it stops us of you know avoid we avoid now repeating the mistakes of the past blah 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 but the actual engagement with that idea is kind of a I think is is still lacking because and it and it and it maybe is because it's 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 become a truism. So one of the things that that I think we find is that um, the same sort of um, human beings are human beings, and they will avail themselves of the techniques and um, uh, themes and, and that that fulfil their aims politically and you know culturally across 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 the piece. So when you look at say the history of something like Yugoslavia of, of a place like Yugoslavia um, you see how um, how people are willing to use um, history for their own for their own ends how they're able to um, uh, use different parts of uh, emphasize different parts of history at the expense of other parts of history in order to create a narrative that then becomes fulfilling and, and you know and sort of sits alongside and all um you know dare i say all politicians do it you know um in in, in this country for example you know if there is a if if, if we're faced with a uh, you know a, a brutal regime or a dictator and the conversation comes up around you know intervention or non-intervention then the word appeasement will be used um and you will see how lessons are drawn you know le lessons of the first world war were well you know uh, we mustn't rush into conflict again because look what happens and then obviously delay you know people don't rush into the second world war so after the second world war the lesson is well you know we must uh, face up to dictators otherwise they become and you can see how lessons are drawn it's not necessarily though always the case that those lessons are unambiguously the absolutely correct one because there may be many lessons to come out of conflict so one of the things that i think it's really useful for us to do as museums is to kind of present the sorts of things that may become lessons <laughs> From some of these conflicts, or we may eventually come to understand our lessons from these conflicts, um, and perhaps for for us to sort of gently pick at the idea that there is one and only one way to view the lessons of of, of these of these conflicts. In the particular example of Yugoslavia, of course, you know the, the the rhyming thing has has particular resonance because, of course, people remember the reason people remember a rhyme is because they have it repeated over and over again. That's how we learn, you know, our, our times table or our alphabet or whatever. Um, you do it in song, you do it in rhyme, and of course, that's almost literally what happens in in, in places where uh, a regime or a government wishes to emphasise one aspect of its heritage or one aspect of its history by repetition and exposure. It's funny you, you mentioned that because that's something I struggle with a lot is, you know, looking at current events saying, is that a, is that a rhyme of, of that similar thing that happened in the past or that kind of, or, or, or is this different? And it, it's not uh, at all readily identifiable when you're currently in, in the context to, to because it takes, I think, a degree of confidence to say, "Oh no, that's what that is. That is a that is a strong echo of that of that, and that is where this will lead." If you know things don't go differently, it's it's uh, quite hard to identify when it's under your nose, strangely. And yeah, and and it's also, um, you know, there there are no um, there are no givens about this. You know, it's not you know, um, an event may bear extraordinarily similar characteristics to one that happened. In, in the past, but um, a host of other hidden variables may make mm. it very different. The, the one that the event in the past, uh, you know, the, the the abnormality, or you know, there, there is no. It's, it's why I think it's really important that we that we kind of get away from the idea of history repeating, but more that you know that there are these echoes that um, mm. uh, potentially point you in the direction of where something might might go. And I think also that um, it's not necessarily simply looking for those events or those historical uh, happenings that, that that may have similarities. It's about looking at those historical events and happenings that may contribute more of an explanatory part, you know, the causal or explanatory mm -hmm. framework to the current event. So an event in the past may not be... Um, you know, it, it may bear no resemblance to uh, the event that's going on, but it may have a great deal of uh, to do with what's going on. 
you may find the, the, the seeds of a particular way of thinking even though it's a very it's manifested in, in a very different way so and i think that's one of the really interesting things about uh what museums can can do because we're able to um you know, we're able to present uh, you know material culture evidence as as part of that that journey so people are interacting with it so it's so so we're almost sort of saying uh, this is we're putting this forward as evidence of this particular rhyme scheme or this particular story um do you agree with us that that's that's kind of what it what it represents because it's here in front of you you can you you can look at that um but yeah it's it's you know it's it's using history to predict is not um is not ideal because uh you can you know you can throw a, a, a bread roll in a in a cafeteria and hit 15 people who all have entirely different lessons drawn from the events of yesterday let alone um, you know, the events of 50 or 100 years ago. So before we get into the episode we're going to hear today, Series 2 of Conflict of Interest is coming out in the spring. Can you just give us a, a preview of what's in store there? Yeah, sure. So um, while we focused a lot, I think, on uh, very contemporary conflicts in Season 1, albeit ones that you know stretch back to the, to the 90s and even beyond in terms of uh, the, the Troubles, um, series two, we're, we're, we're going back even further. So we're looking at uh, post Second World War um, yeah. conflicts. Uh, some focused around the Cold War, some not. Some focused on uh, conflicts that are adjacent to the Cold War. And perhaps because of that, uh, people find a little bit more difficult to get a handle on. Um, I think we'll be, we'll, we'll be really getting into um, kind of some sort of uh, explaining as to how a lot of those conflicts are perhaps relevant today just as we did in in, in, mm. in series one but i think also what we're going to uh, look at is that there are a, a, a series of conflicts in this period um and you know we, we're looking at, at vietnam we're looking at new, uh, british nuclear testing cuban missile crisis um north korea um uh you know we're, we're looking at the sorts of things that that uh I guess people will often gloss over maybe in a kind of uh, post-war uh, when they're looking at conflict in the in the post-war period because I think the Cold War is this kind of monolithic thing. So we're we're really excited to look at, at, at some of those and and to to link it with some um, some anniversaries coming up. So for example, we're we're, we're doing a, a, a podcast around um, uh, the Falklands War, um, the anniversary of which is is, is coming up uh, this year. So um, yeah, uh, stay tuned for those. And here now is the episode Conflict of Interest, The Yugoslav Wars, from the Imperial War Museum. This episode contains descriptions some listeners may find distressing. You can find out more information in the show notes. Case number IT-9937I, the prosecutor versus... Slobodan Milosevic. This is Conflict of Interest from Imperial War Museums. I'm Carl Warner. I am the Head of Narrative and Curatorial at Imperial War Museums, and that means that I'm responsible for uh, the team of curators that develop the collection. So all of the things you see around you, uh, we're responsible for either bringing into the museum or making sure that people can understand the significance of it. Well, you seem extremely busy and important because this is a, a fizzingly exciting museum. I am Deborah Francis White. I do the Guilty Feminist podcast. I'm a comedian and writer, but I'm best known for the Guilty Feminist, uh, which has a sort of remit for contemporary feminists who aren't perfect and are happy to admit that. Deborah has joined our curator Carl Warner in the Imperial War Museum in London to try to understand what are the major conflicts of our times. And in this episode, we explore the Yugoslav Wars. That old phrase, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. It is illegal being not appointed by UN General Assembly. You'll remember a rhyming couplet if somebody drums it into your head over and over and over again. Tito, Milosevic, Srebrenica, just some of the words associated with this conflict. But how are they all connected? And how much further back does the story go? You left all of those heavy weapons against unarmed people and now you come to film us. Why didn't you come to film us there? On our way, we'll explore iconic items from the museum's collection and meet someone with an in-depth knowledge of the conflict so that we can all 
for at least one moment in time, understand what happened and when and how it was allowed to happen. There is a rooted philosophy of impartiality and non-violence, which, however admirable, was not suited for the conflict of Bosnia. All this in under an hour. I'm James Taylor, and this is Conflict of Interest. We begin in the Imperial War Museum's cafe, where Deborah and Carl have been thrust together by well-intentioned producers to find out what Deborah already knows. So what comes to mind when I say Yugoslavia, or, or, or more pertinently, the Yugoslav Wars? Uh, well, I think of words like uh, Milosevic, Serbo, Croatia, uh, Bosnia. Um, I think of there's a star on the flag. So I spent the my first awareness of 9-11 in Croatia up all night watching TV. And my friend had a like a really shacky holiday house like it was a very very basic I remember the heat of Croatia and how rocky it was and we sat there watching 9-11 all night and the next day we went out Um, I remember there was like a time magazine cover with a man at the end of the war who it looks like a similar image to the images you see of uh, concentration camps and the holocaust being liberated and he's very all skin and bone and he's wearing jeans uh, lots of stories about violence against women and some of those I'm I'll be honest I'm a little bit frightened to look at them because I know that they they linger with me for so long and I then I also feel like a bad feminist for saying that because if people can live them how can I dare not look at them those are my associations thanks Deborah um okay well we're going to try and um, together fill in some of those those gaps maybe and, and expand on the topic a little bit so let's let's take a walk around the museum they move from the cafe passing the Baghdad car installation and weave their way to the first stop on this unique tour of the museum you know the 90s was my kind of formative years yes it's all kind of mixed in with Britpop and mm. and the yeah. Spice Girls and things like that yep. we were having a very different reality and a very different experience mm. And I think it's just so easy to look away from things that are very, very difficult, but also to find them very difficult to process and understand how someone else's reality can be so different from yours. Yugoslavia, meaning South Slavic land, was created in the aftermath of the First World War with the Treaty of Versailles, when Europe was carved up and borders redefined by the Allies. It brought together Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, Macedonians, Bosniaks and Kosovar Albanians under a single state. Identity in Yugoslavia was often split along religious lines. The Serbs were affiliated to the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Bosniaks were Muslim, while the Croats subscribed to Catholicism. What was former Yugoslavia like? You know, I talked about Croatia being very rocky and hot in my experience. you know, it was a big place. What are the landmarks? It, it was a big place, but it had, because of the fact that it brought so many different cultures together, it absorbed the artistic styles, the architectural styles of all of these different uh, areas. So somewhere like Mostar, somewhere like Sarajevo, stunningly beautiful place of, of mixed architecture representing hundreds and hundreds of years of growth from different parts of of Europe and and the East. One of my memories, I think I was 10 when the Eurovision Song Contest came from Zagreb and the bit in the middle was all about tourism in Yugoslavia. This was in 1990. And, you know, obviously Eurovision tends to give a fairly glossy view of a place, but it looked absolutely stunning. One part of the the cultural tragedy that that accompanies genocide is that is that things of meaning things that are selected for preservation by people as representing their their identity their cultural heritage that includes architecture that includes these things and to see them destroyed see them burned sometimes deliberately um it's heartbreaking they have arrived at the first objects two maps one of yugoslavia after the first world war and another after the second world war And just as the two world wars have some similar themes, so too does the history of Yugoslavia. Karl has a phrase he uses to describe these moments. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. 
So things that happen in the kind of the pre-history of Yugoslavia with all these nations and the, and the, and the, the history of, uh, across the 20th century tend to bubble up and, and repeat themselves in a way that starts to edge countries apart. So Yugoslavia comes into being in the Second World War. It's invaded by, by, by the Nazis. Part of it is given a kind of, semi, sort of autonomous status and behaves pretty atrociously to another part of, of the country. That's the, the independent state of, of Croatia there. Yugoslavia is known for its partisans, for the people who, who resist the Nazis, the leader of which is Tito, um, who becomes the leader after the Second World War and essentially hangs together these, these republics with different identities, with different um, ethnic mixes, and hangs them together under this kind of flag of brotherhood and unity. Okay, that's the, the kind of thing that will hold, hold together. Tito ruled Yugoslavia with an iron fist, suppressing the nationalist hate that had emerged during the Second World War. His slogan was brotherhood and unity, and he was determined to preserve Yugoslavia as a multi-ethnic communist state. In a way, is it like the United Kingdom, which is really four different countries? It, it, it is, and if you imagine that the United Kingdom had a very recent history where there was intense violence and occupation and forced movement and all well, of these kind of things. Some of the United Kingdom might say that they have experienced that. But, I mean, incredibly recent, as oh, in the 20th century. Northern Ireland, you might it, say. You, know. you, you might, and the, I think the, the difference would be the fact that you then go from uh, that dislocation in war to an authoritarian regime during the Cold War. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Yugoslavia sits in a kind of little extra position because it, 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 Tito breaks with, with the Soviet Union. They form their own kind of semi-market-based communism. They're fated by the West and the East. So Tito kind of holds this grouping together mm -hmm. just with this idea that we, we're all these separate provinces, but we are equal. And, and Tito's in Croatia. T Tito is in the whole of Yugoslavia. But, t so, but is Croatia the England? Where's the, where's the London that in everyone the, hates? Uh, <laughs> well, what comes to be the dominant power in Yugoslavia arguably is Serbia. But you're a federal, it's a federal country. So, you, so we have a, a president, it, it all comes together which is fine, and then Tito dies in 1980. Tito's death marked the beginning of a turbulent decade in Yugoslavia's history, where change was also happening on a global scale. The Cold War was coming to an end, most famously with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, and the collapse of the communist government in Yugoslavia left a power vacuum in its wake. It was against this backdrop that different nationalist forces began to re-emerge in the region and tensions started to rise. Carl, you keep referring to ethnicity, mm -hmm. but is that a bit of a misnomer in a way? How ethnically diverse are people and how much is it more about language and religion? I don't think you can divorce the three. I mean, one of the terms <laughs> I really remember from the 90s was ethnic cleansing. Yeah. And that so, seems like such an, a horrible turn of phrase. Ethnic cleansing, it's just, it's so ugly, isn't it? And you still hear that used today. Why is that not seen as a more problematic term? Well, I think it, it is because it was used as a, almost a synonym for genocide. And, you know, as, as, the, as the courts... But like a literal whitewashing, like a sort of yeah, and, cleansing. And, it's such it, a horrible turn of phrase. The, the, whole, the whole thrust of it is that there are parts of, particularly Serbia, but there are, there are parts of, of, of Yugoslavia as it breaks up. Um, they want to have ethnically homogenous nations. And the problem with Yugoslavia, inverted commas problem, is that there has been so much spread and mix that if Croatia, we all have an independent Croatian state, and then thousands and thousands of Serbians living in it go, hang on, yeah. um, that's not us, right? We're, we we're, we're, we're this. Now, where that becomes dangerous is where you have people mixed in and living harmoniously side by side, and then one side says, no, actually, this is our territory. So right. everybody, every mosque must go, every Muslim house must go, and you target people based on the fact that they do not meet a set of criteria that you establish for the dominant ethnic group in your society. One of the most complicated parts of the Yugoslav Wars are the number of players involved. Karl does his best to break them down. Can you tell us what the languages and religions are in play here? 
I mean, if we start with the, the kind of the national identities, Slovenes, Croats, Serbs, um, Bosniaks, so Bosnian Muslims, Bosnian Serbs, you have a variety of different people who have a different kind of uh, heritage in their mind as to, as, to, as to who they are. You then have a series of different religions. So as I say, you have Muslims, you have a variety of different forms of Christianity. So you have Serbian Orthodox, you have predominantly Catholic areas. The way it is looked at and also preyed upon internally is it's people's religion and national identity that's the that's the the crucial thing. I am Serbian, I am Croatian, mm-hmm. um, I am Bosnian, and, and so on. One of the issues that comes up, of course, is that in large areas of Yugoslavia, people are living together happily. It's not the kind of ghettoized ethnic, you know, non-mixing that that would be suggested from what happens afterwards. How did they get people to turn on their neighbours? Because presumably people were living together, they were working together, they were married to each other. There were all sorts of uh, ways in which they were a community. How do you get people to suddenly turn on their neighbours? It's an excellent question, and one that will introduce a new voice to the episode. My name is Armenka Helic. Uh, I was born in the country that no longer exists, Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, I was a citizen of one of the six republics of Bosnia-Herzegovina when the war broke out in Bosnia in 1992. I was living there and uh, towards the end of 1992 I came to the United Kingdom where I have become a British citizen and a fully-fledged member of the House of Lords. Well, hello, I'm Inka and... Uh, what an incredible CV that you have and combination of identities. And I'm really excited to talk to you today and get to know more about former Yugoslavia and Bosnia and your experiences in it. We return to Deborah's question. How did this multicultural, multi-ethnic collection of nations turn against each other? I think it came out... Uh, not from the bottom up, from the, from the top down. It was through the exploitation of nationalism. It was through injection of uh, dehumanization of the other. It is through realization of how strong and how able and capable Serbian nationalism could be used as a tool to control not only the rest of Yugoslavia, but uh, to discourage those who wish to not be under that tutelage from thinking freely. Was there a similar rise in nationalism in Croatia and in Bosnia? If I can take you back to 1987, a little-known uh, communist apparatchik called Slobodan Milosevic is the one who actually was the first one to cite this powerful weapon that could be used, and it, it, its name was Serbian nationalism. Previously a banker and a communist bureaucrat, Slobodan Milosevic rose to prominence as president of the Serbian Republic in 1989. There were Serb minorities in many of the Yugoslav republics and provinces, and Milosevic was successfully able to whip up nationalist resentment amongst these groups. Aminka, you were young, you were a teenager and then a university student when the conflict began and, and when you left Bosnia. What are your memories of that time? I was a teenager and then uh, when the war started, I was in my early 20s. And I remember clearly uh, Slobodan Milosevic uh, giving his speech in Kosovo where the first reaction against this nationalism came. I've never seen anyone whipping the the passions and and sort of that, that were somewhere out there in the people and, you know, trying to kind of rise it to the point of really weaponizing. In some cases, you know, you, you think about it today, nationalism does not necessarily have to be negative if it's not turned against the other. Nationalism can be, you know, can express it in pride. You can express it in, in different ways. When you start expressing it by lacking intolerance towards the other, that you identify as your uh, adversary or your enemy. That is when nationalism becomes dangerous. Arminka is talking about the Gazimistan speech. This is an address given by Milosevic in Kosovo in 1989. It marked the 600th anniversary of the Battle of Kosovo. 
This battle was fought between the Muslim Ottoman Empire and the Orthodox Christian Serbs. And the speech was given to a massive crowd of ethnic Serbs, becoming a symbol of the ascendant Serb nationalist movement. With nationalism on the rise across Yugoslavia, there is a disintegration of the bonds that kept the different nations together. War breaks out in 1991, starting with a 10-day war which results in Slovenia breaking away from Yugoslavia. Soon after, Croatia has its own war of independence, also hoping to secede from Yugoslavia. And then finally war comes, the, the locus of war moves from Slovenia, Croatia into Bosnia and Herzegovina and of course the issue there is that there are um, a significant number of people in uh, Bosnia. I mean, but, but Bosnia-Herzegovina breaks down this sort of roughly, um, I think it's about 44% Bosniak, so Bosnian Muslim. Um, you think another third sort of Bosnian Serbian. And the Bosnian Serbs are essentially saying, well, no, hang on, we, we want this to be part of Serbia. Croatia is also involved in saying, well, actually, there are Croatians living in, 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 in parts of Bosnia. So effectively, what happens is you get conflict in Bosnia, which is that kind of third phase of these wars. So Slovenia, very short war, Croatian War of Independence, then war in Bosnia. And that, the location of that conflict, that is some of the most brutal, um, horrific uh, violence that you can imagine. 
that part would eventually secede or would eventually become part of what has always been a dream of creation of a greater Serbia. Are you saying that they deliberately went out of their way to find men who had a history of violence to go and do this? Yes, yes. If you look, oh. if you look at paramilitaries, if you look at what they call red berries, let you look at tigers, if you look at archons, uh, paramilitaries, those were not those were not uh, uh, regular soldiers. Those were thugs who joined the paramilitaries because crossing the border, crossing the river Drina between Bosnia and Serbia and having weekend warriors who would go and plunder and burn and uh, protect their what they saw as their Serbiandom, but also in that process have an opportunity to go and commit crimes of the worst sort of nature and rape was very attractive to these people. This was sanctioned from the top because they were deliberately organized on the borders so that you can cleanse the, the area. They deliberately organized in the north, in Priedor, in, in Kozarac, etc., where the majority of population was Muslim. And they all Croat, and through this uh, policy, they ensured that people would leave in absolute fear, and that was very effective. Yeah, th- thank you very much, Arminka. I that's fascinating to hear you talk about that and and i think one of the crucial things that that we're going to look at here is is you know when we talk about you know i think the international criminal trial pointed out there were about 86 different paramilitary groups operating as alongside the six warring factions and then and then a greater number of of people who were even outside of of those groups but they weren't acting autonomously one of the things in, in our collection, there was a gentleman serving in former Yugoslavia and, and one of his things he decided to do in order to kind of almost keep track of these these vast numbers of these different paramilitary units as well as the actual uh, units of the warring factions was to collect the badges that they produced themselves to, for, for their units. And now, Carl and Deborah have been presented with a tray of those badges, embroidered fabric with many emblems and styles of illustration. So some of the things you see here are a mixture of badges that um, give you a sense of the of the, the range of different sides in the conflict. That's Croatia, obviously Croatian Defence Forces. Um, we have Serbia. Why is the Croatian badge a frog with a gun? That's a very good question. I think the, the crucial the crucial thing actually is is more on the the uh, red and white checks. I mean, you say that he's on a gingham background. But in a very real way, the focal thing is he looks like a Disney cartoon of a frog with a gun. This pattern was a symbol used by the Ustasha, a Croatian ultra-nationalist group that carried out mass atrocities against Serbs, Jews and Roma in the Second World War. And amongst the ethnic violence of the 1990s, these symbols began to make a resurgence. I mean, you know, cartoon characters are always used in... You just have to look at the side of an aeroplane with, you know, there is a lot of playing with all sorts of different symbols in conflict. But I think the interesting thing here is that that um, colouring, that that those red and white checks with the symbol of the Ustasi in, in, in Croatia, they, they were the people in running the Nazi fascist state in Croatia that killed hundreds of thousands of, of, of people. And, and, and the, re-work, the reawakening of this symbolism it's one of the reasons chosen because the frog is very distracting, but the symbolism within former Yugoslavia to this um, at the time was quite alarming, and that was one of the areas where Aminka mentioned, you know, this kind of sort of arms race of fear. Well, you know, if if, if one side moves towards nationalism, another side moves in response. Aminka, do you know why it's a frog? Maybe it is a distraction from actually the main symbol, and that is a symbol that uh, is black, uh, white and red flag of Croatia with bears resemblance and hunkers back to the days of independent state of Croatia from the 1940s on. There's another one here that's got a sort of basically like a gun on a stand that looks a lot more aggressive, and then another one of two eagles back to back with swords underneath. And these... The, the eagles with the swords underneath looks a lot more like a typical crest. The one with the gun looks a little bit more like a sort of gorilla. This is this is a representing a mujahideen uh, unit. So obviously, one one of the that happened in, in in Bosnia and is that you know when when people are identified and singled out and killed or exiled or, or you know their 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 culture destroyed 
one of the consequences of that is it draws people together under the banner of, of religion. So there's all of these elements of ancient history, slightly more recent history, that are drawn on and, and pulled into all the identities that then start start fighting. I think, as we were talking about earlier when we talked about history rhyming, the point of that is that you'll remember a rhyming couplet if somebody drums it into your head over and over and over again. And one of the things that certainly Milosevic did and certainly Serbia did was that picking on these elements of, of, of prehistory, of past history, and saying that's the one that, that should define your relationship to your fellow citizens and your relationship to this conflict. And that is kind of what you then see when people badge it up. Snowflakes fell like teardrops from heaven as Sarajevo buried yet another of its children. As the fighting in Yugoslavia worsened, international news outlets started to uncover the terrible violence being carried out by these paramilitary groups. And the sound of so much grief hangs in the air as she's lowered into her small, shallow grave. How much do you think the internet would have changed what happened in Yugoslavia? Do you think it could have stopped it or made it different or less horrific? There was no political will in the West to do much about this conflict. There was This was immediately after the Cold War and... This, this phrase, ancient ethnic hatreds, provided exit route to anyone who didn't want to get involved, who didn't think that they were needed to get involved. And on the other hand, we need to also think about the amazing war reporters and journalists at the time, like Christian Amanpour, like Ed Llewellyn, like uh, Maggie Kane, the photographers like Ron Haviv, uh, Anne Leibovitz, who spent time in Sarajevo in 1993, these people were the internet at the, of the time. These people were the information that, that, that was put through. And if you think about Britain at the time in the 1990s, it was the biggest kind of like gap between what the politicians were saying and what the reports and the media were saying about the conflict there. Time for another object. On this occasion, in the form of a YouTube clip. So we've got a video here of an example of a, of a type of music that was <laughs> state-sponsored uh, jollity, um, uh, turbo folk. Now, as some turbo folk. Turbo folk. So this is uh, a piece of Serbian music and I use that in the loosest possible sense that is that is effectively saying that that they are in the wrong that that Serbia is in the right and obviously I have to using say, that Carl, imagery it was quite catchy at the beginning and I found myself uh, tapping my foot and then I saw the lyrics and I stopped because yeah. they were extremely uh, hostile ex- and nationalist yeah nationalist hostile um racist xenophobic to our eyes potentially it looks like a fairly blunt form of, of propaganda and of course you know we look at it and go oh, you know, how ridiculous isn't the music terrible but it's when you're coming out of a, a single party state a communist state and where news and culture is fairly uh, restricted and state-led the production of this kind of material fits into into a general diet that reinforces the messages that, that the politicians are looking to, to get across. And now we come to one of the most infamous moments of the Yugoslav Wars, the massacre at Srebrenica in Bosnia. The events at Srebrenica were especially shocking for what they symbolised. The massacre was carried out in a territory assigned as a safe area by the UN, where local people were supposed to be under the protection of UN peacekeeping forces. It's so scary and it ended in so much horror and trauma, generational trauma, I assume. Carl, can you tell us about Trebinitsa? And uh, it's, it's hard to talk about genocide, but can you explain to us, when we hear the word genocide in association with Yugoslavia, what does it really mean? It's, a, it's an enormous but very important question. I mean, genocide, as a, as a word, you know, first coined by Raphael Lemkin, it, it's not a synonym for mass murder. 
it has other components to it. So mass murder is part of it, but it's about eradication. Genocide is about eradicating and completely wiping out a group of people. So all of the components that we've looked at today in terms of, you know, we've used terms like ethnic cleansing because that, that was sort of related to it. They, they fall under a kind of banner of activity that was genocide and was, dis- and was found to be genocide in the international criminal trials that, that followed. There are various forms and things. We've talked about dislocation, you know, forcibly removing people, forcibly taking away their culture, destroying their, their mosques, destroying their, their places of religious worship, destroying the National Library of Sarajevo. All of these things um, are part of that. But what obviously people think first is um, the sort of genocide that accompanies things like concentration camps and massacres and deliberate uh, murder of thousands of people. One of the things that happened in Bosnia was increasingly because of the violence, there were enclaves, areas where Muslims grouped together. The, The idea was that the UN would protect them. Now, as it turned out, when tested in several areas, the UN failed. Srebrenica was, of course, the most famous example of that, where, unfortunately, the men and male children of the village were taken and executed and pushed into mass graves, about 8,000. If you add that, that to things like the, the camps that, that we've talked about, the sexual violence, this is where all of these things kind of coalesce into, into, this, into this word of, of, of genocide. And Srebrenica came to represent almost a failure to recognise that it was again possible or happening, even despite all of the, um, the coverage that was starting to come. The massacre at Srebrenica became a powerful symbol. It was the most extensive genocidal act carried out in Europe since the Holocaust, and a failure of the world to live up to its post-war promise of never again. When you go back now to any part of former Yugoslavia, Uh, Do you see a healing? Is the trauma from this horrendous war uh, in any way healing over? I can see progress in terms of people moving on and lives in a way improving. But I don't see that these people, uh, whether they are survivors or perpetrators, have left a trauma behind or that there hasn't been sort of element of transferring that trauma to their children because this goes very very deep and i would also say that those on in on his behalf on whose behalf these crimes have been committed or were committed they don't have a they have sleepless nights as well what do you remember from uh, the 1990s of of the way the world perceived this and and the reaction of the international community? I feel like at first there was a, oh, we don't want to get involved with that, let them sort it out themselves Mm. reaction. And then it went on for a long time and then the UN started to get involved and other countries started to get involved and uh, step in and try and stop the worst atrocities. And I suppose you also have to remember that there were other things going on in in the world. You know, I mean, the Maastricht Treaty, for example, the first Gulf War. You know, things that 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 competed for attention. And I, you know, we we often talk about that, don't we? You know, the the, the way that what news stories get bumped when a big event happens. You know, the thing that would have been on page one is suddenly on page two. The thing that was on page two is on page three. We have our interests uh, shaped by the way in which they're presented in, in, in the media and the relative importance that's shown. But I think one of the things that uh, Aminka obviously can speak to this is, is, is the way in which the people over there felt that they were struggling to get the story out. And the, the main reason for that was that, that things remained terrible for a very long period of time. Even when the United Nations moved in, we talked about Srebrenica, we talked about some of the problems that, that happened there that resulted in the massacre. The setting up of safe areas, you know, it was a it was a slow process. And that's one of the things that journalists talked about. You know, why is there no... Why are we still reporting on this? 
As the war continued, the UN was forced to confront its own inaction. I think there is no doubt that the UN or the international community has had and has a responsibility for the safe havens. A few years later, a camera crew from UNTV, the United Nations television network, documented some of the reaction of refugees in UN care during the conflict with mixed results. Why didn't you come and see how it was? Why didn't you come? You left us in hell to be beaten up, to be slaughtered, abused. They were burning everything, destroying. You left all of those heavy weapons against unarmed people and now you come to film us. Why didn't you come to film us there? Why didn't you come to hell as well to save us? Instead, you come and film us here. I mean, that's a pretty horrific clip and you can't blame that it looked like a teenage girl. You can't blame her for her anger there. And it just makes me think there are 78 million people displaced today. And in large part, the world is turning its back and pulling up its borders and saying, well, it's not our problem. And we do have a responsibility to civilians who are pawns in this game and suffer the horrendous consequences and lose their homes and lose their families and lose everything. And we, we need to start treating people like people. I don't know, Aminka, what, how, does that make, how does that make you feel as somebody who was a refugee? Well, I, I've, I've been listening to you saying that, you know, the numbers of refugees in the world today and uh, simply ignoring this issue is not going to make it go away. And I would also add to this, like on, on average, a refugee stays in a refugee camp for around 18 years. Oh. That is shameful. Imagine if you are a child of five, you are 23 uh, before you can make your life somewhere. What, can, what has your life become? And how have you been formed? How have you managed to develop? What have you learned? Well, absolutely. What have you learned? And what kind of citizen of whatever country you're going to be? And I just think that we have reached, you know, the time has come that we, where we have to stop and think, I know that intervention is not popular. I know that boots on the ground is not something that is easily justifiable. I know that there is a deeply, particularly in the UN, rooted philosophy of impartiality and nonviolence, which, however admirable, was not suited for the conflict of Bosnia and is not suited for any other conflict. At some point, if you saw a big guy t beating up a small guy or a or you would want to have something to say. You wouldn't sit there and say, well, let's be impartial, see how this one ends up. Because it, it doesn't, it never ends up well. So how did the world intervene, Carl, and what was the result of it? Well, as we've seen, that there were um, mixed uh, signals sent by the world to um, the protagonists in the conflict. I think it's fair to say for a significant period of time certain aspects of the reporting, certain aspects of the information that came out really did, I think, galvanise opinion. In 1995, as a response to the massacre in Srebrenica, NATO began Operation Deliberate Force, an aggressive air campaign to weaken Serb forces in Bosnia. The extensive reporting of Sarajevo NATO airstrikes on Serbian positions, we, we heard in that video the woman saying that, you know, you didn't take the heavy weapons away. Well, this is part of the thing, you know, all of these weapons ranged against these artillery pieces that were indiscriminately shelling places like Sarajevo. So when NATO, when the UN NATO finally did say, well, actually, we will use airstrikes to push the uh, Serb forces back, and also that will effectively cause those sides to come to the negotiating table. And, and the settlement, a peace settlement, was uh, was negotiated. That wasn't the end of the wars in Yugoslavia, as we know, you know what happened then later in Kosovo, which had a similar trajectory in terms of international involvement and, and the, 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 the kind of the outcry for international involvement. But it led to peace, it led to the establishment of, as Aminka talked about, in Bosnia, of these two separate parts of Bosnia, but still... still uh, Bosnia, the end of the war in Croatia, when you know, uh, you know, where there was actually a, a, a push led by by the Croatians against the Serbian areas that we talked about right at the start, 
And of course, along the, alongside that was running this idea of how does the world come to terms with the crimes that were committed in Yugoslavia. So the foundation of the International Criminal Trials for former Yugoslavia and the eventual creaky, slow, but inevitable process of justice weaving through that and some of the people responsible for some of the crimes uh, being brought to justice. The Dayton Agreement of 1995 brought an end to the violence and led to the creation of a single state known as Bosnia-Herzegovina. However, violence did continue in other parts of Yugoslavia, including in the Kosovo War in 1999. Case number IT-9937I. Following the war, the UN set up an international criminal tribunal, a court of law that dealt with war crimes carried out during the Yugoslav Wars. This is former Serbian President Slobodan Milosevic speaking at his trial in 2002. I consider this tribunal false tribunal and indictments false indictments. It is illegal being not appointed by UN General Assembly. One of the things that you, you obviously see there is the enormous task facing the ICTY, not just because of the enormity of the crimes, but of the issues on defining those crimes and defining the legality of bringing people to justice under international law. There were debates, well, is, is it an internal, does international law apply to these sorts of things? And then, of course, that gives the, the very first you know, appeal from many of the defendants to say, well, I don't recognise this, which is you know, fairly recognisable from most war crimes trials. I do not recognise the... You know, you're, you're right to try me and all, all of these sorts of things. But the fact that they, they, they worked through that, and I think it was about 160 convictions and like 20 acquittals, I, I certainly think that, that after a conflict of the magnitude of, of the wars in Yugoslavia, that sort of process, however imperfect, led to some pretty extraordinary admissions and pretty extraordinary... Uh, levels of conversation about what had happened. Aminka, how do you feel about your homeland now and what what are your hopes for it? I always, every single day, when I wake up, I uh, check the news from Bosnia because I am fearful for the future of Bosnia. Uh, as I say, the war aims that were set in the 1990s were achieved with the Dayton Peace Accords in 1995-1996. Uh, the stabilization of the country and prosperity has, in, in certain aspects, succeeded. But if each day when you wake up, someone who leads a particular ethnic group in Bosnia-Herzegovina today uh, wakes up and says, I hate this country, I don't want to be a part of it, you're taking away my freedom, I want to join another country, you wonder what what kind of uh, messages that is sending to the wider population. And also you wonder what kind of children are growing up in the in a country that used to be so multi-ethnic that now is divided along ethnic lines. And, uh, it, and it makes me, makes me fearful for its future. What are my hopes? What I would love to see? I would love to see Bosnia-Herzegovina that is a homeland for every single citizen that lives there. And what are your hopes for the refugee crisis? I think you are an example of somebody who has brought a lot to Britain with you. If you could speak to all of the world leaders who are looking away from refugee children and young people, and you would say yourself you were a university student, when you came to Britain, what would you say to encourage them to be humane to people who are displaced and the victims of war and terror? I would say start from the beginning. No one becomes a refugee out of choice. No one wants to leave their school, their family. No one wants to leave their friends behind. No one is seeking to learn a new language, new customs. No one is seeking to try to occasionally be invisible in order to be able to to be accepted and to be integrated. So that is not a choice that anyone makes. A refugee, a genuine refugee, is someone who is seeking support, help and protection 
when their lives are in danger, when their families are being destroyed, when their 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 women and their daughters and are being threatened and raped. The, think about where those people come from. Think about them as someone who can contribute to your society. Don't stigmatize them as people who are burdened, people who are going to take away your social security, people who are going to take your jobs, because if you give them an opportunity, they will give you back. If you treat them with respect, they will treat you with respect. They will want to give back something to the country because there is no bigger gift than a gift of security and safety. And I can tell you, as someone who has gone through this process, there isn't a bigger dream that you can have when your life is under threat. They are the people who have dreams and they're the people who want the best for their children and for themselves. And don't take that away from them by treating them as second class or lower than or treating them as others. Treat them as a fellow human being. And when you can help, do help them. When they come into your country, if you have already taken them in, give them an opportunity, they will give you back. Thank you, Aminka. That's a beautiful sentiment and very moving. And I hope that the world leaders are listening to this podcast and take this on board. It's almost time to leave this conflict of interest. Deborah and Carl return to the cafe to pick up their coats and consider what they've seen and heard. Deborah, what have you uh, learned today? What would you take away from the conversations that we've had with Alminka and, and the things that you've seen in the museum today? Well, I've certainly learned a lot about the logistics of the conflict that I didn't fully understand before. But more than that, I've learnt from Aminka the emotions of the conflict. And that's what's really important, because that's what will help the human race at some point, we hope, get beyond these horrors so thank you very much to the Imperial War Museum for facilitating these conversations I hope that the cure that we've held in our hands today through this story is permeated around the world and with that our time at the museum must come to an end And that was the episode Conflict of Interest, The Yugoslav Wars, from the Imperial War Museum. My thanks to Carl Warner and the Imperial War Museum for sharing the podcast with us. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Zamone Perez, Anissa Pizeshki, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm Dan Efron, the executive editor of Podcasts at Foreign Policy. See you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about. You lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>